Lord Jesus, you said that uh, after your death and resurrection, you performed sort of a heavenly tag team. You rose to heaven and tagged the Holy Spirit who came down in your name and in your place to accomplish your will. And Lord, we know that part of that is to open the eyes of our understanding. That Lord, truth is spiritually appraised and grasped. And Lord, we can bring all kinds of defenses we can bring misunderstandings and confusion, but your spirit is here to help us think your thoughts after you, to see things as they really are. Lord, we ask that by your spirit this morning, for each one of us here, you'd speak those things we need to hear. And Lord, from your word, that you'd help me be faithful in what you've said, and that we would have hearing hearts, Lord, and an attitude to do the things we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Read a couple quotes to start out, and as we do, hopefully you have a study sheet. I've uh, got a few different colors going this morning. Uh, ask yourself the question, answer the question as we go through this this morning, though. What is my life's ambition? What is my life's ambition? And as you think about the question, what am I thinking about when I get up in the morning? What's behind the things I choose to do and not do? What are the motivations that are key for how I see life and how I choose to interact? If I could boil it down to a singularity, what would I say my life's ambition is what? You know, on little things we might say, I I have an ambition to succeed in starting a new business or I have an ambition to learn to play a musical instrument or something. We might have lesser ambitions. But if we spread that out and we say on the big scale, sort of the bottom line of our life, What is my life's ambition? What is that single point for me that says I've succeeded at life the way I thought I should at the end of the day? What's my life's ambition? A couple quotes along that line. John McCain, presidential candidate, said, Presidential ambition is a disease that only can be cured by embalming fluid. There's a guy who knows where his ambition was, doesn't he? Only by embalming fluid. Uh, A man's worth is no greater than the worth of his ambition, said Marcus Aurelius, one of the Roman Caesars. This one I found interesting just because of current news. For me, life is continuously being hungry. The meaning of life is not simply to exist, to survive, but to move ahead, to go up, to achieve, and to conquer. That was spoken by former California governor, a movie mogul, soon-to-be-divorced father, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Lose some of that power and fruit of his labor soon, I'm sure. And last, Margaret Mead, cultural anthropologist and a gal who really had a very uh, significant impact on American culture. She and Dr. Spock, especially in the 50s and 60s, changed the way we saw parenting, family, sex, you name it. Margaret Mead said this, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has, an ambition to change the world. She certainly did just that. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 11 in just a second. You know, if you read the epistles, the Pauline epistles, if you read the book of Acts, you know that Paul was a guy with an ambition, and he had, an, he, he had to. He had an ambition that propelled him through life, through all the ups and downs, 
all the vicissitudes. You think of, uh, he led a stormy, stormy life, a tough life. It's not one most of us would sign up for. But he had an ambition in life that propelled him through everything life threw at him. And as we sit here this morning, we think, just ask yourself, what is my ambition? If I sort of bring everything down to a singularity, to, to one thing that I say, my life is successful if this occurs, what is it? How do I measure success in life? What is my ambition? And, and whatever we come up with, the, the ultimate test if that ambition is adequate is at the end of the day, at the end of our life, and specifically, as we'll see in a little bit, when we stand before Christ and give an account for our life, will the ambition that we had here and now, will it have proven adequate when we stand before Christ and, and our life is, is weighed in the balance? Will our ambition be adequate for that day? 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 11, I'm reading from the New American Standard, and that's what you have on your study sheet. Paul, starting out, he's speaking of our bodies. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. It's a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, we long to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked, morally naked or wanting. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we don't want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Paul's going back to chapters 3 and 4 in that reference. We have the Holy Spirit already as a pledge of our future full redemption. Verse 6, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, here and now we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, on earth or in heaven, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. The first point here just has to do with the houses of clay. This uh, subject takes up the bulk of the verses, though I hope to spend as little time on it as possible just to get to the second two points, but I want to be faithful to at least cover these bases also. If you remember back in chapters 3 and 4, Paul's talking about the the glories of the new covenant that we live in today, and that in this glorious new covenant post-death and resurrection of Jesus, when someone trusts in Christ, they get the Holy Spirit. And you remember that the, the analogy there was, Paul says, just like the Spirit came down on Sinai, this glorious presence of God in fire and smoke, And just as the glory of God shone off the face of Moses, you remember when he came down, and just as God's own presence had been gloriously present in the temple in Jerusalem, Paul says that same presence of God is present in every person who's trusted Christ as their Savior. That's the new covenant. And we no longer labor under a law that we have to perform up to, but now the Spirit is within us, our sins are forgiven, and the Spirit's in us leading us and guiding us. 
Paul says, but there's a downside in chapter four, which we talked about briefly and we'll rehash this morning also. The downside was this. The spirit's glorious, the future's glorious, but right now we've got this treasure in chapter four, he said, in an earthen vessel, in a clay jar. And clay jars are fragile and they get chipped and broken easily. And that's the theme he picks up here in chapter five. So just hitting on these points briefly, if we'll run through. Verse one, Paul says, we're in an earthly tent. We're in a tent right now. He says, you guys know tents wear out. They're temporary. And a tent wears out. You use it for a while, it wears out, and you've got to get a new tent or a house or something. But he says, our bodies today, these are like tents that wear out. If you look in verse 2, he says, we're groaning. We're groaning, longing for a physical home that won't wear out. Now, if you're young, if the average age in here is, say, 30 years old or so, you may not feel those groans yet. But give it a decade or two. You know, the knees, the ankles, the back not to mention the gray cells up here. You know, we are, we're dying slowly, aren't we? We're wearing out. These clay jars, they're wearing out. And we groan, and the older we get, sort of the more we value this verse, we're groaning physically because that clay jar that is our body, it's chipping, it's cracking, it's falling apart over time. We groan because of that. Verse three, he says, our mortality leaves us feeling naked or incomplete. That we know we're saved lord willing we know we're forgiven we know we have the spirit and yet we still know in these bodies things just aren't quite right i'm not quite there yet i still have this sense of i'm incomplete i'm not what i should be we should have that anyway he says at verse four a second time we groan we feel the incompleteness of our redemption and i think the second time around he's referring to something like romans 7 you know every one of us if you're a christian you know this Uh, Paul there says, I know what I should do and I don't quite get there. And you know, on the other hand, I know some of the things I should not do, but I find myself doing those things. And if you shift up one chapter in Romans, he gets to Romans 8, 23. He says the same thing there. We're groaning. Our bodies are wearing out. This world of which we're a part physically is wearing out. He says, creation groans. And we groan because we know we're not what we should be. Sins are forgiven, that's good, but we're not quite there yet. Verse 6, he says, while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. Paul really wanted to be with Christ. Philippians 1, he talks about that. You know, the trouble for a lot of us as Christians today is we really do not want to go home. We want to live as as long as we can on planet Earth. And I I think it's because our vision is, is shallow. We don't see Christ the way Paul did. But Paul really wanted to go home and and be with Christ in heaven. He says that in Philippians 1 very clearly. He says, if I could choose, I'd die right now because I'd go home and be with Christ, and that would be far better. But Paul says now, as having that desire, he says, that's an unfulfilled desire now. Christ is in heaven physically. We're on the earth. We're separated from Christ, the one we really want to be with. Verse 7, he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. This implies... This is the deal. You know, Hebrews, we have to have faith to please God, right? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. The trouble with faith is this, though. As long as faith is necessary, it means we're not home. Because faith ends when we see things as they really are. When we see Christ face to face, face to face, faith is over. 
So Paul says these are the days of faith, but that's not as good as the day of future sight when we see Christ face to face. In verse 8 he says, we'd really rather be with the Lord. That's the deal. Those are all downsides of being here on the earth in these physical clay bodies. I don't know if you guys uh, are like this, if you've had these experiences, I suspect we all have. You're in the midst of a celebration. You've concluded something, maybe like a school year or, uh, I don't know, a job. It's a celebration. It's a joyful event, a wedding, uh, something good. It's a high point in your life. And in the midst of the celebration and the joy and all the happiness you feel at the moment, which one of us at some point hasn't felt a pang in the middle of that and just said something like, as good as this is, it's not perfect. Or as much happiness and joy as I feel right now, it won't last. You know, maybe it's Sunday is your high point and Monday morning is going to come. And that's sort of what Paul's talking about. There's this sense of even as good as life can get on the earth in the midst of a celebration, there's a pang, Paul calls it a groan, where we know life is not all it could be or should be. We're not what we should be or want to be fully. And we groan, we have that sense, we're forgiven, we've got the Spirit, but man, things are not all that they could or should be in our experience on the earth right now. Now at verse 5, Paul transitions and he says, God knows this, this is all part of his plan. So going back through a few of these verses, at verse 1 he says, we do have a building from God, it's a house not made with hands, it's eternal in the heavens. So Paul says, The downside, we're in a tent, but we're going to trade up. We're going to get out of that tent. We're going to have a home. You know, Jesus said in John's gospel, I'm going to prepare a place for you, a mansion for you. I think that's geography. But here Paul says, and he's preparing a a physical home for you. It's called a building because it has substance. You know, a house can last really indefinitely here on the earth. And that's the comparison. Tents for a little while, house is sort of forever. We're going to trade in a tent that wears out. Bill, they're getting old, wearing out. And we're going to get a house that doesn't, the house that lasts forever. We put aside that mortality. Verse 2, we have a new body. It's a dwelling place in heaven. Verse 3, that new body is going to uh, leave us feeling complete. There will be that sense, you know, in the garden at the fall, Adam and Eve suddenly, it says their eyes are open. They know they're naked. And what do they do? They take those fig leaves they try to inadequately cover themselves up, right? And ever since then, we, we need some kind of covering because we know we're not what we should be. Well, Paul says when we get to heaven and we get that new body, the completeness of our redemption, it'll be like this ah moment where suddenly and fully we're everything we knew we were meant to be, but until that point we weren't when we trade in that mortal body and get our immortal, eternal building body, it's going to be the completeness of our redemption. And we're not going to feel like something's lacking or deficient anymore. It's all there in that full redemption. And then last, verse 4, our mortality felt in these early earthly bodies is exchanged for what is immortal. And you can see that in spades in 1 Corinthians 15. So, Paul says, one hand, we're in the new covenant, we've got the Spirit, but that treasure, it's in that cracked clay jar. It's wearing out. We groan. Physically, we're, we're wearing out. Morally, we're not what we should be. We're groaning. He says, not to worry. God's got a new body and a great, glorious future for us. The awe moment is still to come.
Verse 9, Paul gets to his ambition. Because of this knowledge, Paul says he has one singular ambition. Verse 9, we have as our ambition, whether at home, in heaven, or absent on the earth, to be pleasing to him. Paul says his ambition, the thing that gets him up in the morning, the thing that motivates him every day of his life, is he's determined to please Christ. And I think it goes something like this. Paul really knew that he'd been saved. You know, he knew the depth of his depravity. You read that in his letters. And he knew the cost of his salvation. And so I think for Paul, he's sort of saying this at least. Every day I get up, I want to thank God and I want to thank Jesus Christ for what he did to save me. And I want all of my life to be a conscious effort to say thank you to the one who saved me. I want to say my ambition in life is to please Christ, the one who laid his life down for me. So Paul's singular ambition and the thing that was behind his motivations and what he did and where he went, what he said, what he didn't do, was he said, in everything I do, I want to please Christ. That's my goal. That's my motivation. That's the ambition of my life. So why did Paul preach the gospel to the Corinthians? Because he wanted to please Christ. He'd been commissioned with the gospel. You know, or what, what helped Paul come back to this sorry, shallow, group again and again and again because he wasn't getting anything out of it you know he was rejected by the corinthians just time after time he started the church we've talked about this but he's the one who's always said paul you're not quite there you're not our kind of guy yes you started the church yes you knew a few things along the way but you you're not up to our standards and yet he comes back to them again and again to help them see the truth he was living his ambition was to please christ that's why he did it You know, what propelled him through imprisonments, beatings, stonings, shipwrecks, rejections, betrayals, he says at the end of the day, my ambition is to please Christ. And so I simply keep going, doing the things I believe Christ has called me to do. Pleasing Christ is the ambition, he says, of my life. You know, and if you read 2 Timothy, Paul's at the end of his life. He's going to be beheaded in short order by the Roman government. And he faces death, if not with a smile, with a, court of, with a kind of uh, peace and joy because he says here at the end of the life, my life, I fought the good fight, I finished the course. In fact, in that context, he says, there's laid up for me the crown Christ is going to present to me. There's this reward ahead for me because I've done, as far as I know, I've done all the things Christ asked me to do. My ambition was to please him, and at the end of my life, I can say, I think I did that. And so I can face death with a smile. He says something similar in Philippians 3, which is a great uh, memory verse. If you haven't got these, Philippians 3, 13 and 14, he says, One thing I do, I forget what lies behind, and I reach forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Yesterday, it's history. I'm looking forward, I'm looking ahead, and I'm reaching forward to Christ himself. That's my motive, that's where I'm going, that's what motivates me, that gets me up in the morning, that's my ambition. So as we're thinking of Paul's ambition, ask yourself again, what is my ambition? You guys know you're in church on Sunday morning, the correct answer is Jesus, isn't it? And that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking brass tacks in your heart, between you and the Lord, when you say, what really makes me tick, what is it? What is my motive for living? What's my ambition? 
right now as I see life, if I get to, let's say, 70 or 80 or 100 is the end of our life, if I get to the end of that course and look back, what will it mean to have been successful or what will failure mean really where we live right now? What's my ambition? What's my ambition? And if our ambition isn't to please Christ like Paul's, what is it? And is our ambition big enough so that at the end of the day, at the end of the race, at the end of the course that is our life, is our ambition adequate that we'll be able to say, we'll look back and say, that ambition was worthy of my life. And that ambition has set me on the place I want to be in eternity. Will that ambition, will succeeding in that ambition, will you say at the end of your life, that was worth it? My life was worth that. This is for me a huge reality check. Um, you know the church, and, and I always include lion and lamb, us, when I say this. We, we tend to be a very, very shallow group these days, the church of Jesus Christ, very shallow. I don't think our ambitions routinely are where Paul's were. I think routinely, sort of as a group, corporate, again, just look at any of the studies that deal with evangelical Christianity, people just like us, the statistics are always about the same. We're not much different than the culture. And I think that means our ambitions are much, not much different than the culture. That for most of us, ambition is a quality lifestyle, nice house, health, good car, kids get a good education, you know. That's just what everybody in the world wants. There's no difference. If that's our ambition, there's no difference between us and the rest of the culture. We're just the same. So we live the same, same kind of lives, and that makes sense. That's consistent. If we do this reality check and we say, what's my ambition? If we think pleasing Christ is too narrow for life's ambition, if we think pleasing, pleasing Christ would cut out too many options from my life, and I know this is true, this, it does. If we think pleasing Christ would remove too much fun from our lives, my question becomes this, why would we want to go to heaven? Seriously. Because, you know, in heaven, everyone and everything pleases Christ perfectly forever and ever and ever. That's heaven. Everyone, everything pleasing Christ forever and ever and ever. So if our ambition is short of Paul's, that my ambition in life is to please Christ, what are we looking forward to? You know, then as Christians, we really should say, I want to live on earth as long as I can, have as much fun as I can, because heaven is for losers. It's not as fun as life on the earth. That would be consistent, consistent rationale. If our ambition in life is not to please Christ, I think our ambition is faulty. I think we've bought into to some goods or a package that is not what Jesus is selling. It's not the gospel. If we don't understand that pleasing God our Father and Jesus our Savior is the best thing we can do, this is my conclusion, our minds are still shrouded in darkness and lies, our thinking remains unrenewed, and we are just like Eve in the Garden of Eden. You remember Eve? The lie was, God is withholding this good thing that you really should have. And as Christians, if we have an ambition in life less than pleasing Christ, we're just like Eve. We believe the lie and we say, yeah, Jesus isn't enough. His plan isn't worthy of my life, and I need to go lay hold of those apples or oranges or pears or this career or that thing or this version of fun or whatever. I talked to a guy years ago 
who uh, we, I was talking the, the gospel about him, and he was very bluntly honest, which is refreshing. You know, most of us head. We give the correct answer. So, <clears throat> young guy, college campus, he says, hey, Mike, everything you say, I get it. I, it sounds good. You know, we're lost, we're sinful, we're deficient. Um, and Jesus died for our sins, and he'll forgive us if we accept that, you know, if we believe in him. He says, I get it all, I, I hear you. Uh, he says, my one trouble with this is this. He says, I'm a young guy, and I want to sleep around. And, I, and I, I, I loved him for giving me the truth. That was the bottom line. See, he had a clear ambition, and he knew what it was. And I just appreciated the fact that he knew what his ambition was, and he was willing to tell somebody else what it was. You know, by the way, if your ambition isn't worth publicizing to others, is it worth having? If your ambition isn't worth selling to others, is it really worth your time and your life? He had a clear ambition, willing to tell you what it was. You know, even as Christians, if we have a clear ambition to preach, uh, to please Christ, are we willing to tell others that's our ambition? You know, a lot of times, again, we simply don't want to appear odd to other people. Even if we have an ambition to please Christ, we might not want to make it known to others because that would be odd, but then can we please Christ? Our ambition is to please Christ. Can we please Christ and not tell others about what our ambition is? But we ought to have an ambition that's worth knowing and that's worth proclaiming and that informs our life. And I just think, guys, again, whether you think of this as going back to the Bible in your personal time every day when you get up, I think our minds are unrenewed so that as Christians, most of us have ambitions no different than the rest of the world. Most of us here probably don't say with Paul uh, to depart and be with Christ is far better. We're like, you know, I'm thinking of bacon eggs in the morning. I'm thinking about a nice nap this afternoon. You know, that sounds pretty good. Jesus can wait. I'm in no hurry. But, you know, as good as life is, and God's given us all kinds of stuff to enjoy here. I mean, he is a good God. And he showers us. He pours down good things on us to enjoy, absolutely. But he will be the ultimate enjoyment. There's no joy, there's no pleasure we've ever known or can ever know on the earth that won't be absolutely eclipsed when you see Christ face to face. And know him as he is. And you are known by him as you fully are and as he intended you to be. No joy we have on earth will be able to compare with seeing Christ as he is and knowing him and getting it, nothing. And the trouble, I think, for most of us relative to our ambitions not rising high enough is we don't value Christ as he is. We don't know him as he is. And so you say, well, how do I raise my ambition? You get to know Christ more fully. You meet him in your Bible. You, you meet him in worship and the saints gather together. You pray about things that matter. You get to know him. You know, last week we talked about in 1 John 2, John said that the, those who were spiritually elders in the church, they knew God. That was the deal about them. They knew him. And you know, one of the reasons why the older we get, the more we long for heaven isn't just that we're groaning and the bodies are wearing out and we've seen our own sinful nature for what it is. It's that we value Christ more fully. We know him better. And so we say, that's where I want to be. He's where I want to be. He's who I want to be with. 
But shallow ambitions are because our sights are not set high enough because we're not informed. The eyes of our hearts are not enlightened yet to see Christ as he is or as fully as we should be able to see him while we're still here in these earthly clay tents. If we cannot say with a robust conviction that pleasing Christ is the key ambition of our life, we really need to reevaluate what we really believe. What's our bottom line? Because it's it's probably not what we think it is or what we'd say it is as the correct answer. Now, the last of these three points, verses 10 and 11, and if you don't hear anything else this morning, this is the thing I want you to hear. It has to do with the judgment seat of Christ. On one level, Paul is ambitious about pleasing Jesus. He's been saved. He's thankful. Remember, he's been to heaven too, and that's an advantage you and I haven't had probably. You remember later on in this same epistle, he's going to say, I know a man in Christ... Don't know if he's in the body or in the spirit, but this guy went to paradise, saw things, heard things he can't even tell you about. Paul had an advantage over us in that sense. But guys, this is something else he said. He said here in 10 and 11, he said in 11, uh, the fear of the Lord, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul's tack here to the Corinthians, he says, for their benefit is in part generated by a healthy dose of fear of God, the fear of God. You know, as Christians and uh, parents, maybe we want to be chums and pals with our kids, and we, we feel that way sometimes about God. And God loves us, certainly, and he's our father, no better father for sure. But guys, all of us should have a healthy fear of God because he's a fearful, fearful being. You know, if we saw him today, we'd just fall apart because he's so awesome and so fearful. Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men about this ambition in life, about the ambition that fuels your life, that takes you to the end, and you say, was this worth it or not? Paul says there's a fear that we should bring to this equation. And he says there in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. This is the the judgment seat of Christ. In Greek, this is the Bema seat. And so this is the picture. Everybody in his day knew this. They all knew what this looked like. If you were at the games, the sporting activities in Paul's day, there was a raised platform or stairs, and on it were seats for the judges. And they'd look down to see who won the race, and they'd award first, second, and third based on their judgment from the Bema seat, this raised platform or stairs on which seats were set. Uh, Paul in Acts 18 stood before a Roman judgment seat, a, a seat raised physically. You know, it showed the authority of the person sitting on it. It's raised above everyone else around, and that's the place of authority. And if you read in John 19, when Pilate condemns Jesus to death, he does so from the Bema seat, from the judgment seat. It's the seat of authority. And Paul says, all of us as Christians, one day at the end of our life or at the end of the rapture or at the second coming, depending on what your understanding of end times events is, one day every one of us as a Christian is going to stand before Jesus Christ and we're going to give an account at the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. And at this judgment, it's just us and Christ. It's not our friends. It's not our family. It's just us. And 
in Romans 14, hopefully you've got these references on your study sheet. Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 3 are the other key passages on this. Romans 14, Paul says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God as it is written. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall give praise to God. That means to tell the truth. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Same thought, the judgment seat. We're going to give an account. And in 1 Corinthians 3, the context is the church. And he's talking to the Corinthians specifically about the way they're investing in the church. And there he talks about this future judgment as being a thing like fire. And it's as if he says the elements of our life, they're like building materials. And and we bring them in and we invest in life and we invest in the church. But on earth, it's hard to know what the quality of those building materials is that we're using. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, the judgment seat of Christ will be like a fire. And part of our life will probably be like wood and fire set to wood, it burns up and it's gone. But other elements of our life, those things done for Christ out of an ambition to please Him, those things will be like precious metals or gems. They, they won't be harmed by the fire. And there will be a reward for us. So Paul says, in part, his ambition to please Christ is fueled by an appropriate fear of God because he knows like a steward, someone who's been entrusted with someone else's goods, he's going to give an account personally to Christ face-to-face for how he invested his time, his energies, his finances, his spiritual gifts. You get the picture. Each one of us has a judgment waiting for us as Christians. The judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ. This judgment is only for Christians. There will be no non-believers there. You know, the world has this picture of... uh, we die and all of humanity goes before Christ and you find out who's saved and who's not saved. That is totally unbiblical. There's just no rationale for that in the scriptures. So we see categories of resurrections. You read about this especially in the book of Revelation. There's no question. When you say, when you die, when we give up these earthly bodies, uh, we go and we're with the Lord as a soul, not with a body. We go and we're with the Lord face to face. And at some point, again, whether it's the rapture or whether it's the second coming, we'll stand as believers before Christ for this judgment. But it's only believers. And this judgment has two things. It has nothing to do with our sins, in all likelihood. I'll qualify this in just a second. And it has nothing to do with heaven or hell. The only people at this judgment are Christians. They're believers. And what they're being judged for is not, did I sin in life? Did I blow it? We blow it. We do sin. It's, it's how did I invest what God gave me to invest? It's how did I use the time he gave me to use? It's did I represent Christ's cause on the earth when I had breath to do so or not? Did I check out? This has to do with the judgment for our works, not for whether we go to heaven or hell. There's only Christians at this judgment. There's no non-Christians. There's no unbelievers here. And it's not about our sin. Some people, if you read commentaries, will say, uh, my unconfessed sin is going to come up at the judgment seat of Christ. You know, I've got to get all confessed up now before because if I die or if I'm raptured, I'm going to stand before Christ. Everybody's going to see my secret sins. I don't think that's what it's about. 
And John 5, 24 says uh, that when we've trusted Christ, we've passed out of judgment into life. All of our sins, past, present, and future, were covered by Christ's blood when he died on the cross. Which one of your sins were not covered by Christ's blood at, the death, at his death and resurrection? They're all covered there, right? Sin as an issue between us and God along this line has already been taken care of by Christ. But this asks the question, what did you do with what I gave you, with the time I gave you on the earth? Was your ambition to please me? Was your life about both giving thanks but also living up to the high call I had for you and your time and your spiritual gifts and the way you invested your life on the earth? That's the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there is another judgment seat. It's called the great white throne judgment. That's Revelation 20. You don't want to be there because everybody at that judgment, they're not saved. And it says the sea gave up the dead, the graves gave up their dead, the books were opened, and everybody at this this judgment seat, this great white throne judgment, they're headed to the lake of fire. And the books simply reveal how severe their punishment is there, just as the judgment seat of Christ reveals how full our reward is for eternity. Paul says fear, and fear is a good thing. Part of what's going to happen at this judgment seat for us, I think, goes like this. You know, we're double-minded. We tell ourselves one thing, we really mean another. Our judgment is imperfect. So when we get before Christ and this judgment occurs, I think our mind is going to be utterly clear. I think our double-mindedness is going to be gone. The fog is lifted. And we're going to see what we did and why we did it just as Jesus does perfectly. I think it's all going to be clear. And we'll say with the Lord, yeah, I really blew it there. Wow. I really blew it there. And we're going to see works of our lives, guys, burn up like ashes in front of us. That's going to be part of it. That's fearful. That's a downside, but it's necessary. What did you do with what I gave you with the time on the earth you had? There's a fear. There's a loss aspect. There's also very much a joyful aspect though to this you know when you read the scriptures especially jesus in the synoptic gospels there's this theme over and over again about a king or the master of a household who leaves on a journey and in his absence he commissions a follower or followers to carry on his business in his name for his sake and that one day he would come back And the stewards would give an answer to him for what they did. You remember the stories? You know, I gave you 10. Master, you gave me 10 talents. I made 10 more. Here they are. That's exactly what we're talking about. Now, the truth is, God is not a small-minded, vengeful judge. He loves us, couldn't love us more. He'll be delighted to be with us. But we're going to give an account so everything's good when we go into eternity. And this is the thing. When he comes back, he wants to reward us. This is about rewards. It's about a a loss. It's about clearing the table of all the inadequacies of our past life and ambition, but it's also about rewards. So when you read in four different New Testament texts about I'll be awarded the crown of life, I'll be given the crown of righteousness, this is what we're talking about. And just as those in the lake of fire will have a more or less degree of severity of punishment, Those in heaven will have a more or less degree of rewards and not necessarily status. Most people think this will be an ability to enjoy Christ to a greater or lesser degree. 
But the thing is, Christ wants to reward us. So he's not coming down to say, you were wrong there. You were, it's not with a red pen, you know, checking off with glee. You blew it in all these ways. The thing is to clear the things that were inadequate so that he can reward us for the things that were actually done with an ambition to please him. That's the deal. So that when we enter eternity, the past is cleared, our deficiencies from the past cleared away, we've gave an account, and God has rewarded us for the things that he could reward us for, and he wants to. That's the judgment seat of Christ, and we're all heading there. And so for Paul, he knew this. And I think if we had a clearer grasp on this, I think it would change our ambitions. Uh, If you've been into dieting, or if you've heard anything about dieting, there's a great phrase that says, nothing tastes as good as slim feels. Have you guys heard that? Or is it just me? Nothing tastes as good as slender or slim or whatever feels. You know, here we're faced with uh, challenges to our ambitions and our goals. When we stand before Christ, nothing will have tasted as good as honoring Christ will have been. Does that make sense? My, my tenses are probably wrong here. That is, nothing we gave up out of, an, out of an ambition to honor Christ will not be worth it when we see him. Nothing we can substitute now for the things that would be born out of an ambition to please Christ that'll all be, will say, man, I'm so glad I did when I see him face to face. Nothing tastes as good as slim feels. Well, nothing we give up now out of an ambition to please Christ will we regret when we see him face to face. It'll be, I assume, this will be, you know, the multitudes that bow and praise Jesus in heaven. I'm assuming we'll all be there. And, And Christ wants to reward us publicly. He wants us to serve him publicly and privately, and he wants to reward us publicly. And so this will be that time. Don't, don't you, like me, you know, we read the story where Jesus comes up out of the water from his baptism and God the Father says what? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And don't we all crave to stand before God himself and have God say to us, well done, Junior. A good job. Enter into the joy. Accept the rewards that I've prepared and kept for you because you honored me. That's what we're talking about. This is the moment. That's the day when that will happen, the judgment seat of Christ. If we can get hold of that, I think our ambitions are going to change. That we live for the day, fearfully on one hand, joyfully and expectantly on the other. We live for the day when we stand before Christ and say, this is what I did with what you gave me. This is what I did with my time. My ambition was to please you, Lord Jesus, and and here it is. And I know there's some wood and stubble in there, but Lord, as much as I know, my ambition was to please you, and and here it is. Sift it out, and Christ is going to give rewards for those things that were done for his name, in his sake, in his cause. In Matthew 24, verses 48 through 51, Jesus is telling one of those stories about the servant and the master going away, and when you look at the slave in this story, the master's gone away, the slave's in charge. But in this story, the slave says to himself, you know what, it's going to be, going to be a while before my master's back. And so, you know what, I can do what I want to do. 
And so he does. So he abuses the other slaves. And he eats and he drinks to excess. And it's because his ambition was me, 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 me. That was his ambition. And he thought, who knows when he'll come back or if he'll come back. I'm free to do as I please here and now. Guys, when our ambition is less than to please Christ, we're like the wicked slave. We're like the guy who says, it'll be a while. I can afford to do what I want now because who knows when or if he'll come back. I saw a little bit of the news this morning. You know, Harold Camping's prediction of the end of the world last night did not happen. You know, no, no surprise, right? Uh, ABC did a clip, and I loved it. There's a guy, misguided, but there's a guy in Times Square in New York last night. He had spent his life savings, $140,000, buying billboards around New York, warning people to be ready for last night at 6 p.m. I kid you not. You know, and he's misguided, obviously. You know, and he says he's got his Bible right there, and he says, this is the way I read the Bible. He's totally sincere. That guy was committed. He had an ambition. He was sold out. And he was misguided for sure, but guys, I just did nothing but applaud this guy. He had an ambition. He knew what it was. And he gave away his life savings to fulfill his ambition. And there, guys, he was surrounded by hecklers, you can imagine, and cameramen and news people. Times Square in New York. And as 6 o'clock came, they start hooting, they start hollering. You know, where, where is it? Didn't happen. And he's, he's standing there, he's befuddled because he doesn't know what to do. He just says, I don't know. I don't understand. I don't get it. But there was a guy mixed up. We don't know when Jesus is coming. He's told us that. We don't know. But there was a guy with a Christ-like ambition to say, I know I'm living for the end. And I think for most of us, we're not there. Let me leave you with this last verse from Revelation 22, 12. One of the last things recorded in the Bible, one of Jesus' last words here, he says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Quickly in Revelation especially could mean very soon in time, chronologically. It can also mean in a moment quickly. That is, when it happens, it happens right now. There's no time to get ready. Jesus says to you and I today, Guys, I'm coming quickly. And I've got a reward with me. Have an ambition in life that sets you up in such a way that you live so that I can give you this reward. That's his heart. That's what he wants to do. Is our ambition, no fooling, Jesus is not necessarily the right answer because it's church on Sunday morning. Is our ambition adequate for life, for a lifetime? And when you and I as believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ, will our ambition have been adequate for Jesus to say, well done, Junior. Good job. Rule these ten cities or take those cluster of galaxies or who knows what. We don't know what this will be like. Wear these crowns because I want to honor you. Will our ambition be adequate for the judgment seat of Christ? That's the question for us as believers. That's where we're going. Do not stand at the great white throne judgment. If you've not trusted Christ, trust Christ by all means. 
You know, people are saying, uh, Christian books we've talked about briefly, uh, every, everybody wins, in the, God wins in the end, God's love wins in the end. Guys, that is not what the Bible teaches. It's not. I understand the emotional appeal. There's no hell. Everybody's okay in the end. I feel better. That's not what Scripture teaches. It is not there. Do not stand at the great white throne judgment. Trust Christ. He's our ticket into paradise, and it will be worth being there. There are pleasures forevermore. There is joy at Christ's right hand. That's where we're heading. So be ready. Lord, help us to live like people who know you. God, help us as your children to live up to Paul's kind of ambition to please you. Jesus, help us to live with a Christ-informed view of the future so that we live in such a way that when we stand before you at this day, we'll be glad we did, and you are free to say to us words we long to hear. I'm pleased with you. Well done. Enter into my joy. Lord, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.